Hello, and welcome to today's Kaijin Digital Insights webinar. My name is Andrew Olson, and I will be your host and moderator. I have a few housekeeping items to cover. All participants are in listen-only mode, but you may post questions in the Q&A, and we will do our best to answer some of those at the end of the presentations. The presentation is being recorded, and a link will be uh, sent to you a few days after this session with a link to that recording. And I promised our attorneys that I would cover the following disclaimer, which you may see in a future slide. Kaijin products shown here are intended for molecular biology applications. These products are not intended for the diagnosis, prevention, or treatment of a disease. Finally, if you enjoyed today's talk, be sure to look in the resources section for a link to another webinar we have on this topic. This is a more hands-on technical presentation by one of the awesome Kaijin Digital Insights field application scientists. We also have links to resource in the resources sections to other materials if you would like to learn more about any of the items presented here today. So with that, uh, we have assembled three awesome speakers today. Each of them have their own specific focus, but combined, I think you will find that they can shed some light on a topic that is great interest to our audience today. First, we have Dr. Alexander Yarash. Alex serves as a technical consultant for the pharma and life sciences industry at Neo4j. With a background in bioinformatics, his career extends across several industries, including chemistry, biotech, pharma, and IT. He has expertise in machine learning and data engineering, combined with his deep domain knowledge in pharma. Next, we have Dr. Venkatesh Moktali, who currently serves as Global Product Manager for Kaijin Digital Insights Biomedical Knowledge Base. Venki has a lot of industry experience, including working at Mission Bio, Twist, and Thermo Fisher. He completed his PhD in 2012 from Penn State University. And last, but certainly not least, we have Dr. Jesper Riga from Idorsia Pharmaceuticals, where he holds the position of senior data scientist. Jesper is a biophysicist with a background in neuroscience and expertise in the use of single-cell transcriptomics. His current line of research involves data-driven translational science, focusing on the analysis and integration of large omics data sets with single-cell resolution for drug development and biomarker discovery. A recent focus of his has been on using knowledge graphs for omics integration and interpretation, as well as a tool for predictive modeling to accelerate drug discovery and development, which is really the topic for today's discussion, supercharging your AI and drug discovery with high-quality biomedical data. Welcome to the web webinar, gentlemen. So, Alex, uh, why don't we start off with you? Yeah, sure. So, uh, hello and welcome, everybody. Um, the pharma industry faces many problems nowadays, right? Uh, we have inflation, Ukraine uh, conflict, also the drug pricing and the reimbursement constraints um, cause many, many challenges in the pharma industry. And um, uh, not only this, but also in, in a, uh, a time of Gen AI and uh, yeah, artificial intelligence uh, in general, it is also a real challenge because uh, um, pharma companies, biotech companies are um, having lack of knowledge of different uh, technologies. There are some costs involved in that, but also how is the access to this um, technology, but also to the data um, and how's the cost, right? And um, this is what we see in Neo4j as well. So we are uh, the leader of, of graph technology, uh, a very new technology although the mathematical background uh, then uh, comes from the times of uh, uh, Leonard Euler. 
And what you see here in the slide is basically that all the big pharma companies and also biotech companies, they are already using graph technology. Uh, so this new technology um, for um, uh, um, basically um, solving their challenges throughout the drug life cycle. Why are we doing graphs? Uh, well, basically graphs are everywhere in our industry. Uh, on the left side, you see a small graph being a small molecule. On the right side, you see a molecular pathway, which is also a graph, right? You have nodes that are uh, enzymes and reactions are our relationships. And I think one of the best examples of a very, very high and dense network is our human brain, which is, can be also represented as a graph. Well, the problem is that uh, our data is highly connected, very heterogeneous, often very unstructured. And uh, this is where relational database systems or, or document databases uh, are, are rather not meant to be and where uh, they cannot keep up with the amount of data, but also with the performance. And that's where graph databases come into place. With some words to what, what a graph is and, and maybe to show you a little bit here, make that a little bit hands-on. Uh, when we call it a graph, it's a set of nodes here. These are these spheres or these uh, circles that are connected by relationships. And, and we can give uh, both uh, labels here, like a gene is a, is a node and, um, or an enzyme, or we can um, give more than one um, node label. And they are, as I said, uh, connected to relationships here in this phase. Uh, um, a gene is coding an enzyme or a protein, and a protein performs a specific function, right? So you see it's very intuitive schema. What we can also do is on both levels, relationships and nodes, we can give them properties like uh, simple properties like strings or integers can be list anything to, to describe your entities and the relationships. And this is called the labeled property graph. Um, uh, we can use that in a, in, in a database, we can persist the data and we can query the data, we can visualize the data, that's the upper row there, we can visualize that in, in many different forms, we can ingest data from many different sources, we can deploy it in the cloud and we can um, build applications on top of that. And uh, it wouldn't be 2023 if we would not talk a little bit about Gen AI or large language models. So this is one aspect here where we can use from left to right, we can use um, structured and unstructured data, even text data to integrate that um, in, a, in a Neo4j graph. And we can also use the LLM for extracting um, knowledge, extracting entities. Um, and then coming from the right side, we can use the large language model as well to use natural language um, in order to query the graph and make sense out of it and, and create insights. Well, um, uh, we have today um, a very good example here where we show that technology like Neo4j um, um, serves as a basis for, for loading a very, very high quality data set and then in, in, in a second step, use that high quality data set in order to make meaningful um, predictions or, or find insights in, in this biomedical world. And I see that knowledge graph from inside to outside. So we have here Kaichem's data set called uh, BKB, Biomedical Knowledge Base, which is a knowledge graph by definition. And you can use that in your company to connect that to the first layer, other um, external data, as you can see it from the left side, being literature patterns, any ontologies, terminologies, omics data, whatever you can find in the public space. One example here, open targets as, a, as an external data set. And you can do a second um, connection to your internal data within the company also 
um, ontologies, high throughput screening data, omics data, but also clinical data. And that makes the knowledge graph very, very powerful tool um, to use that in, in your company. And that brings me already to our next speaker, Venki, and I hand over to Venki because he is explaining a little bit the inner core here of the SkyGen dataset. Hi, Venki. Thanks, uh, Alex, for the introduction to BKB momentarily. I'll, I'll take it over now. Um, a couple of things that Alex mentioned earlier in this slide deck, right, which is uh, that pharma companies are uh, facing numerous different pressures. And uh, one of the... Um, one of the things that have been used as a way to overcome these uh, innovate uh, in uh, overcome these pressures is innovating through newer and unique R and D models. Uh, but what we see, of course, is with these new R and D models, you need new tools and high quality data. So Alex, of course, spoke about tools in the form of new 4J and, and the entire platform that it uh, brings to uh, everyone. Um, and I'm going to talk to you about the data. So. Kaijin Biomedical Knowledge Base is the most comprehensive man-educated database of molecular relationships. And I'm happy to speak with you about uh, what, what it actually does and, and how it can help you in your work. Um, before I do that, uh, just a quick legal disclaimer. Um, that I'll spend just, just one second more on this so that you see, and then let's dive into uh, Biomedical Knowledge Base. So let me tell you what's uh, Kyogen Biomedical Knowledge Base, right? So it is a leading knowledge uh, base of biomedical relationships. It's manually structured and integrated from thousands of sources. And so we have today over 4,600 different journal titles. We have uh, several other third-party data sources as well. Think of uh, databases and such. We also pull data from them. And ultimately all of this data is then put together into relationships. So what do these relationships look like? So on my screen on the left-hand side, I'm showing you what a sample uh, sub-network looks like within BKB. So at the center, you have EGFR, um, which is a target of the drugs uh, cetipsimab. And you'll see that there are a number of relationships that are incorporated ar around this particular uh, gene within BKB. So you'll have relationships between the gene and different pathways, the gene and different diseases, uh, drug and a gene. And not only do we incorporate and um, add these edges, but we also provide a number of uh, different attributes to them. We provide whether it's an activating relationship or inhibiting relationship. We also provide directionality uh, and, and tell you what direction the relationship is moving in. Uh, we also capture the effect, whether it's an increasing or decreasing effect, we also provide context on where this interaction is occurring, whether it's occurring in epithelial cells or elsewhere, um, and then also the subcellular location. So all in all, not only do you get to see uh, the exact context and uh, the nature of the relationship, but you also now begin to understand better where this is occurring and how it then can help you form your hypothesis. Um, and of course, because these are all generated from literature and from third-party databases, we capture the source uh, of the information. So at any given point in time, you always know where this information is coming from. And um, because this is a manually curated database, I have to tell you how this is different from some other products, which uh, 
are uh, are an outcome of text mining. And so let let's take a look at what those um, differences looks uh, look like in just a bit. Um, I also want to talk to you about kind of questions you want to uh, you can answer with the biomedical knowledge base. So you can answer two types of questions. You can ask questions about genes and get them answered, or you can ask questions about diseases. Um, and within each of these categories, you can start act, asking things such as, you know, what kind of interactions are, um, is a gene X involved in? Is it inhibiting a particular other molecule? Is it being inhibited by other molecule? What kind of tissue and cell line specific information can you find out about these interactions of gene X? Is it involved in a particular pathway or disease associations? So there is a ton of information that you can start inquiring about a particular gene. And then subsequently, if you are looking at disease, you can identify biomarkers that are of interest for a disease, look at what kind of uh, drugs are already in clinical trials, uh, are they in phase one, two, or have they been, um, have they uh, succeeded, have they failed? So we capture all, all of that information. Okay, so let me come back to uh, the manual curation piece that I just spoke about. So the biomedical knowledge base stands out uh, because it's manually curated. We have over 200 data scientists who uh, carefully curate this data uh, manually. And they also then, um, uh, there is a very uh, thorough process that they, uh, that they use in identifying uh, different entities from literature. And so we ensure low error rate and avoid downstream costs that ultimately uh, you would incur if you were to look at simply text mine data uh, and, and where you'll, uh, you'll incur downstream costs in just error correcting so that you avoid with manually curated high quality data. Um, not only that, uh, our data is fair friendly. Um, and just to give you context, typical text mine or NLP uh, extraction techniques uh, are able to get to a precision close to 80%, uh, but we get, because it's manually curated, and it's cross-referenced, you get as close to 100% with our data. And so that is, is huge, right? If you're especially now looking back at optimizing your costs and ensuring that you get high quality hypothesis generation and results, you want to start with high quality data. Okay, so let's uh, next speak about um, how do we provide uh, this biomedical knowledge base? So. The product uh, comes in a couple of formats. So we provide flat files um, and databases so you can download this uh, entire content uh, from us. Uh, if you don't want to incur any infrastructure costs, um, we also provide uh, API that you can query. There are a lot of endpoints and a lot of functions that we've built that you can use in order to query this data. So uh, it works for all sorts of audiences. Let me tell you a little bit more about what then um, uh, do we provide when you uh, when you when you uh, get BKB from us. So in we provide documentation, we provide schema and data dictionary. It comes with tutorials that tell you uh, what kind of use cases uh, can be built from data uh, of this nature. Um, and when I spoke about these flat files, we also provide um, SQLite database as well as a knowledge graph representation supported by Neo4j. Um, so those are all the ways you can uh, access this information. Lastly today, I wanna speak about um, a few other things. So we do provide functions. So there are more than 40 different uh, functions uh, that we provide along with uh, this database that can act as a launch pad for your analytics. And so uh, think about if you're doing causal reasoning, we already have a bunch of 
functions that they can use uh, to already get you started so you don't um, start from scratch. Um, one, one big part of the product is also our services uh, uh, availability. So we have uh, a services and data science team that can help you uh, make best use of the product. So we do custom projects where um, we can integrate uh, BKB with your internal data, for instance, or even apply Kaizen ontology to custom data sets, write complex queries, uh, do causal inferencing and so on and so forth. And we work with a uh, uh, number of partners on, on these custom projects. The product itself comes with a number of service hours that can allow you to do a number of things, uh, including uh, writing queries and, and understanding how to best uh, maximize the use of that product. And so what some of the services team and as well as data scientists worked with um, recently with uh, Idorsia and uh, we were able to uh, work on something very interesting. And so uh, in just a moment, Jesper will walk you through this uh, amazing use case that I'm really excited for him to bring to you. So with that, I'll, I'll pass the ball to you, Jesper. Okay, thanks, Manky, for the introduction. So yes, basically, I will try and uh, walk you through a use case that we had exploring TLR7 as a potential target for SLE and other autoimmune diseases. And just as a little introduction to Idolsia and where I'm sitting. So we are located uh, in Basel in Switzerland. We are a medium-sized startup uh, focusing on small molecules. And I'm sitting in an interdisciplinary translational biomarker team where we mainly focus on uh, exploring uh, and establishing new biomarkers and also do um, positioning of targets into the correct uh, disease areas. This is a little bit uh, the focus of this presentation as well. And so an overarching theme of a lot of our activities relates to inflammation. Uh, modern society uh, is basically subjecting a lot of people to chronic inflammation that eventually can lead to different disorders, as you can see in this slide. So, you know, a lot of uh, cancers, autoimmune disorders, and neurodegenerative diseases has an inflammatory component. And it's the, channel, it's the challenge of pharma companies to basically better understand these diseases and identify targets that can help address these questions and problems. Um, for the purpose of this presentation, I have focused on an example relating to autoimmune diseases, which is the TLR7 uh, receptor. And just a little disclaimer that this was made specifically for the purpose of this presentation. So there's no commercial interest from a dosha side in this particular target. Um, just a little introduction to TLR7. Uh, so it's a receptor that sits within the cells and detects basically single-stranded RNA. So typically uh, infection of a virus. So this is what you see here in the left-hand part of this figure. And TLR7 will then initiate immune responses once it detects a single-stranded RNA and the body will then be able to defend itself against these viruses. A lot of research over the last 20 years has focused on the mechanisms uh, underlying these different uh, toll-like receptors and how they initiate immune responses. And it has been shown, for instance, that severe COVID has been associated with a loss of function of TLR7. So the lack of the ability of the body to actually detect uh, virus infections, uh, which allows the virus basically to uh, to to proliferate and, and uh, develop into more severe in, uh, diseases within uh, the body. 
And the other uh, aspect is gain of function. So if this gene is basically overactive, uh, it can basically also lead to um, uh, what's called chronic inflammation and activation of the immune system, uh, not based on basically viral RNA, but endogenous RNA or red acids that triggers this receptor and leads to to autoimmune diseases. Recently, last year, there was a publication that actually drew a very clear causal between uh, the gain of function in the TLR7 receptor and lupus. So I think it's now become quite well established that there's a functional association between TLR7 and lupus. Um, so this also constitutes, I think, from the pharma perspective, a quite typical use case where you in the literature see a publication where there is an association uh, weak or strong between a target and a disease and the question is whether this would then be a good target for a drug development and of course ideally you want to 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 explore this as much as you can from a data-driven perspective before you dive into doing additional experiments and that was also the motivation from my side to see like can we use resources such as knowledge graphs and, and BKB in particular to basically help you answer some of these questions. So um, what you can do now is then start exploring, but what is basically the pharmacological landscape around the given uh, target? So in this case, we can start diving into TLR7 and, and the pathways and functions associated with TLR7. Um, and now you can just see here, a visual representation of the graph around TLSM in terms of pathways and functions. So you already see that it's quite rich. And there is a causal relationship between TLSM and SLE because that was established from the literature. And as a kind of further exploration, what you can do is then you can see but which pathways are basically shared between TLSM and SLE. And that's what's shown in this thank you plot on the right-hand side. And here you then start seeing that there is increasing support for the fact that all the pathways and mechanisms related to TLR7 in, in, uh, and its mechanisms is also associated to SLE. So that gives you a first hint that apart from the causal relationship, that might not always be the case for all targets in the graph. There are other indirect metrics in the graph that you can use to basically support the claim that actually there is an association and a potential causal relationship between your target and a given disease. Then you can also start exploring the clinical landscape. So what is actually currently under clinical development and what has been approved for a given target. And there's different ways of doing this. So here, for instance, you can see that if you just take the target and expand all the indications that are directly causally related to this, you end up with a big hairball here on the left-hand side. There's 271 indication related to TLR7 itself. Um, what you can do then is that there are different plugins in Neo4j, this is SenseBake, where you can actually navigate through this complex graph in a little bit more intuitive way. So you can expand, for instance, TLR7 towards current drug trials, and you can then split it up into which ones are basically antagonists or agonists. Um, and then you can get a view from these, like which indications are then actually being targeted in these different drug trials. And you can start basically getting an overview of what's happening in the clinical space for a given target. You can then start drilling down a little bit on these numbers again. So you kind of expand and then you kind of go into details. And then uh, one way of doing that is, first of all, you can just plot a little kind of your circular histogram. Uh, about the number of trials uh, and diseases that are uh, relevant for the different phases. And you can see that 
for CLR7, there's a lot of happening in early development phase one to phase three. Um, but there are also already approved drugs on the market. And what you can then do is you can, again, try to decompose that a little bit into what is antagonist and what is agonist. And here, for instance, approved drugs, most of them are actually activating uh, the receptor. So blood typically uh, here, uh, few uh, uh, cancer uh, treatments which want, want to kind of boost the immune system. Or you have different types of warts or infections that also the intention is to boost the immune system to try and treat these disorders. And then you have a lot of activity, like I said, clinical development space where a lot of tumors were lumped into one because there was just a lot of exploration using different uh, immune targets to boost the immune system to support you know, different kinds of ongoing uh, you know, cancer treatments. Um, and there's a little bit of activity here in terms of uh, inhibition. And this is where, you know, uh, SME comes into play. So, right, so all the autoimmune diseases, you actually want to suppress the immune response. Um, and this is what is shown here. So, so this is kind of the clinical space. So the exercise was, let's see how we can potentially place our hypothetical targets in this clinical space. Where would we want to go? Where we would like to avoid things where there's already active development. So this is what is shown in this figure here. So you can you can kind of go okay for an antagonist. We would then maybe not go into SLE. We would also not go into psoriasis. And the question would then be, where should we go? Um, and then we try to see if we could use uh, BKB and and graph uh, analysis to to try and see if we could come up with novel indications, things that are maybe a little less obvious, where there still is a, a, a good potential and supporting evidence for, for going into it with an antagonist for TLR7. So we had basically two different ways of doing that. One was to look at protein-protein interactome and disease modules. And the other thing was to look at link protection for cancer factorization. And I would then walk you through these two different examples. So just to look, so what you can do actually with DKB is you can, it's very rich and you have a lot of different relationships, but you can look specifically at the protein-protein interactions and extract that part of the graph. And we can just do it like uh, step by step. So you can expand around one gene, for instance. So here is just the, the, the neighborhood around TLR7. So everything that is directly connected uh, either with direct interactions or in associations described in the literature. And this is then what we call the TLR7 protein-protein interaction module. So here there's 26 interaction genes or proteins. Um, and then you can do one more hop and say, what is then connected to this? And you can see that it already starts becoming very rich. So now you end up with more than 4,500 genes that are connected with each other. And visually, it starts becoming quite complicated. You don't see much here. And if you look at the entire network, uh, you end up with around 19,000 protein nodes with almost 900,000 edges. So here on the right-hand side, it's just a little bit of a typical summary statistics of this type of network. You see most of them are involved in the same component, one big large network, and there's a very, very few uh, proteins that are not really connected to the rest. And you have here basically a distribution of the connectivity here, and you see that maybe there are a few highly connected nodes um, and it, it typically looks like what you see from other typical similar types of networks and, and what has been applied, for instance, to the analysis of small world networks and things like this. So this was just kind of like a, an introduction to the protein-protein interactome. 
And what we want to do is not really to reinvent the wheel, but there has been a lot of work already, uh, suggestions how to basically leverage this kind of uh, interactions to, to say something about uh, the relationship between different diseases and what could potentially be either novel targets or novel indications for a given target. Um, so here, the idea is basically to take an existing distance metric between different modules. So what we do is that we, here's a visual representation I have borrowed from this publication in science uh, several years back, where if you start with the protein-protein interaction network, which is illustrated here with all the dots and the, the gray connected lines between them, you can basically superimpose uh, uh, indications that are associated with, with these different proteins. And then these are the disease modules. And here you basically have for multiple sclerosis, the module highlighted in red. So all the proteins that are at this point associated with multiple sclerosis, and you can do the same, the same for other diseases. So here, for instance, you have rheumatoid arthritis and you see visually that they are close to each other here. And there's even an overlap, like one protein is shared. And then you can define a distance metric that basically says how far away are these two different modules from each other. And that's what's illustrated here on the right-hand side. There's also a, in a way, more simplistic way of calculating this, which is based on the Descartes index, where you just see based on two sets, what is the overlap between these two sets uh, compared to the, to the total sum of, of, of the, like the, the, the union of them. And then here we have looked at the correlation between these two metrics and it's clear that there's a correlation, but it's, it's not like a one-to-one. -one. And we have kind of jumped back and forth between the two different distance metrics to see in, in a way what gives the best results. And, and the idea is here that you can then use this distance metric. So if you use our uh, TLR7 protein-protein interaction module as a starting point, and then you see what are the distance uh, of all the different disease models to this uh, TLR7 module. And then you rank these according to a distance metric. Here we use the one from the science paper. And you know the, the, the smaller the value is, the, the more overlapping basically the different networks are. And typically with this exercise, you end up with a ranked list of many disorders. Uh, and a lot of them are, of course, somehow associated with each other. You see that lupus comes out on top. So that is reassuring but also not very surprising but you have of course also like a lot of uh, indications that are associated with infections and, and oncology and the next challenge really becomes like how do you make sense of this long list and how do you then prioritize in some meaningful way and what we did then was to say well why don't we try to cluster them together in some sort of functional way so what you can do is you can also use the module distance metric to do mutual distances between all the different diseases. So they basically have a vector uh, of mutual uh, distances to each other. And then you can use this uh, as a metric uh, to try and group the different diseases according to each other. So in this case, we took the top 200 indications and then we reduced it with a UMAP to two dimensions. And you clearly see that there are some structure like a relationship between the different indications. So now we actually end up with four clusters that somehow are overlapping in the protein-protein interaction space, meaning that they share a lot of mechanisms and pathways. So if we then dive in a little bit to each one of these, I just kind of list the top five indications from each cluster and a little bit of an overview. There are some patterns that start to emerge that for instance, on the, on the right-hand side here, the, the three clusters, one, two, and four are mainly involved in different kinds of tumors. But, you know, here you have carcinomas and relating to splinter cells and pancreatic carcinomas. 
you have a group here that is very related to, to specific mutations in four different driver genes. And what is maybe the more interesting for us is then cluster three, where you had lupus along with other indications relating to inflammatory responses. Um, what you can then do is you can start drilling down further and saying, well, what is actually the underlying shared pathways and functions and mechanisms? What is the biology that basically separates these different indications into different clusters? So you can take all the genes or proteins that are shared in this cluster and say which pathways are then enriched here. And here again, I've just listed the top five in the different clusters to give you an example. So you can see that you know you can use this to start start dissecting out the underlying biology and you can use that to make it, make informed decisions about what would be the best indication to go to, to go further with um, for this particular target. Um, and in our case, since I was interested in autoimmune disorders, uh, what I come out here from this analysis is that actually there are pathways now relating to neuroinflammation and multiple sclerosis. So in this hypothetical ex uh, example, if, if I wanted to, to go into a new indication, then maybe that would show me that you know, this, this could maybe be the, the, the right way to go. Um, we then tried to do to apply another uh, method to, to more or less answer the same question, like are there any way we can predict novel indications for this particular target? And there are different ways of doing this, and one of them is, is sensor factorization, where you can basically integrate a lot of different resources in this kind of relational uh, data to try and predict novel uh, links. Uh, so, for instance, uh, one example would be like for Netflix users, how would you predict the ratings of movies uh, for a user that has not been rated? And you can either use the fact that he has already seen several movies that he has rated, and these movies are similar, maybe in science fiction, to another movie. So maybe you could predict that he will also like this one. You can also use the fact that other users have, you know, made ratings for similar movies, and if they like one, they will also like the other. And all of this can then be integrated into like predicting uh, missing links, basically, and what would be. Um, basically the confidence that there is uh, a link between a, uh, and two different nodes. And in Kyogen, uh, biomedical knowledge base, uh, we did the same. The question is that just, you know, for a given target, TLR7, we know that there's a causal link to SLE. What can we say about MS? There's no causal link, but what would, based on all the integrated knowledge in this graph, what would be the likelihood that there is actually a causal link between these two? And then, we use this basically to rank either genes and diseases. So in this case, the starting point is a gene. So we can start now to rank the different disorders according to this prediction. So actually, we give a, a, a score for each of the, of the novel link predictions. And then here, I have just taken the first 20 uh, novel predictions uh, for the causal uh, links that increases. So basically, in this case, uh, an overactivation of TLR7 is associated with the disease, which is, you know, the case for the autoimmune disorders. And then I've just taken the top 20, and again, you end up with a rank list where different terms are associated with each other. So you want to kind of try to group them together in a meaningful way. Uh, another way of doing it compared to before would actually to use the information in the graph uh, that contains relationship between the different diseases. So that's what's illustrated on the right-hand side, that if you, for each 
the indications that were predicted with a high score? What is the parent term? And can that be used to glue together and associate some of these indications? So you see here color-coded in red, the ones that basically form one graph when you do this. So this is related to encephalitis and inflammation of the brain. There's another subgraph that emerges where you can link together, for instance, activation of microglia. And then there's another subgraph that emerges here that is maybe related to uh, uh, what's called viability of leukocytes. And then you can basically reorganize your graph uh, and try to see if there's patterns and what are the overall trends. And I think it's clear here again that there is strong support for some sort of neurodegenerative disorder or mechanisms and, and something that's driven by neuroinflammation might be an interesting target in this case. Uh, an additional uh, step would maybe be to try and reconcile uh, or, or integrate the two methods. So you can take now uh, both the novel prediction, but you also have a score for all the existing uh, known prediction that was in the graph. And then you can integrate these and say, take all the ones that in this uh, prediction has a score larger than one, that would give us 204 indications. And then you use the distance metrics from the protein interactions and do a UMAP again and see what is basically the, the pattern we have here. And then you try to see if you can find novel predictions that are separating from the rest because they, they will be the likely candidates that are most novel, you know, they're separating, or, uh, separating away from what, what, is, what is already known in terms of the protein-protein interactions. And that is the graph that comes out of this. And I've then highlighted here a tiny cluster that seems to fall into this category, right? That these are color-coded. So these are cluster one novel prediction, these blue dots here, each dot is an indication. And they all relate basically to different types of uh, immune systems, what's called uh, and nervous systems, inflammatory responses. So again, uh, there, in this particular exercise, uh, if the goal was to, to position yourself uh, with a novel indication that there is a lot of support for, for basically going into some sort of neuroinflammatory disorder. Uh, you can also, again, drill down a bit further and say, but what is the underlying biology uh, within these clusters? What is, what is driving this separation? And you can split it further into novel and known. So if we just look at cluster one, you can see that for the known indications that fell in here, you have basically different types of inflammation related to maybe inf infections. Uh, there's lung, nephritis, uh, kidney, different organs. Uh, and the novel predictions in this category in, is then actually related more to the nervous system. So there's, there's an overlap in some biology, but it's related to a different organ. And you can then say, okay, but if it, if it would be successful in treating maybe nephritis, it could actually also maybe be successful in treating some sort of neuroinflammatory related disorders. And you can then do the same for the different clusters if you're interested in drilling down that direction and you can start seeing the differences in the biolog underlying biological mechanisms for these different groups of disorders. So just to kind of summarize, you know, our exercise here basically shows that for TLR7, um, if you were to position yourself uh, on the market in, in a clinical space in, uh, in some sort of, with an antagonist, you know, uh, MS and Alzheimer's might be interesting candidates. They relate to, to neuroinflammation. You would need to, of course, do further exploration, but just from a, from a, uh, data-driven perspective for me, there's quite good support for the fact that these could be interesting indications to explore further. Um, so on the left-hand side, I've just drawn the graph of the relationships and you see that there is a correlation 
between multiple sclerosis and CLI7. It's not causative. Um, yeah, and I, I just uh, here we have shown that basically currently there is no competition there. There is basically no no clinical trials exploring like CLI7 antagonist for for neuroscience related indications. And there is circumstantial evidence. So this is what you can say: there is a correlation, not a direct causation. So different studies, for instance, have shown that okay, within an animal model, it was clear that there was an association with the activation of TLR7 and neuroinflammation. Uh, and here I've just listed, for instance, like uh, one typical anti-malaria drug has uh, actually been approved for rheumatoid arthritis and SLE, and is under clinical investigation for MS. And that's relevant because one of the mechanisms of action is also activation of TLR7, which is not the only one. And, and again, you know, there are, once you start drilling down, you know, from all the big range of possible indications, they say, okay, this seems to be like a good candidate, then you can start drilling down in biology, you can start drilling down in the different literature, uh, and in the clinical trials to see like what is the supporting evidence, and then move on from there. So, in conclusion, I think uh, you have we haven't really covered the technical details, but BKD is a quite rich resource that you can explore in different ways. So you can use it uh, in R and Python, or you can integrate it into Neo4j and do Python queries. And you can integrate it with different sources, which we have not shown here. But of course, if you integrated some of the associations between genes and diseases, for instance, from GWAS studies that are integrated in open targets, you could maybe improve the link prediction. And there's also internal data that, you know, whatever learnings you have, you could merge the two or you could support in, in what's called interpretation of omics data, which was one of my motivations to also start diving into to the exploration of knowledge graphs. You know, that you have a list of different express genes and you can then go into, you know, knowledge graphs and see for what are the likely pathways or what are the mechanisms or diseases that are related to this. Um, and that basically concludes the presentation as maybe the last and most important slide. These are the acknowledgement. These are the people that were involved in this analysis. So apart from me and Alex and Denki that presented this, there was a few people in Python that was very helpful in analyzing and supporting this uh, pilots. Um, and the ideas was basically based on internal analysis that we did on other targets and then we kind of put this all together as a kind of use case that might be helpful for you guys out there to see what you can do uh, with these types of knowledge graphs and analysis. Thank you, Esper, for the wonderful presentation. Um, let's take a few questions. Um, let's see. So it kind of came in in the order of the presentation. So let me start off with this one here for you, Alex. What are the limitations or considerations for combining and visualizing other data sources using the Neo4j platform? Um, good question. I think there are no limitations, not from the data perspective. Um, scaling, I would say it's also not a problem anymore. You can scale it in any cloud. So yeah, you're basically free to integrate and to connect every kind of uh, data you have and that makes uh, sense to you. Okay, great. Next question I have here looks like uh, for Venki. Uh, do you filter out certain journals or conflicting findings derived from different articles? And how do you manage that? We, we don't uh, filter any particular journals. Um, 
So, but having said that, right now we do not have um, any findings, or we don't look for data from preprints, and so preprints are excluded. Um, as I mentioned, there are about forty six hundred different titles that we currently scan for, and our aim is to give you all findings, right? We don't want to be the gatekeeper for what you should and you shouldn't see. Um, and so we will uh, attempt to provide you the entire state of the art um, as is revealed by the literature. Um, of course, what we've seen is that um, oftentimes as, uh, as, uh, as the field moves ahead, certain findings can get resolved or negated and so we are always on the lookout for these kinds of occurrences and we'll correct for those in later journals and so it essentially the database improves and adapts to the state of the art in uh, in the research and we typically do this by uh, continually keeping an eye on 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 this so we have quarterly updates to the database and so every quarter we release um, a new version of the database that you can immediately pull out um, uh, however, of course, we are keeping an eye on a daily basis. These all ultimately culminate into a quarterly release that goes out. Great. Okay. Uh, next question looks like is uh, for Jesper. Um, what have you found to be the greatest potential pitfalls when using outside data for these types of analytics-driven discovery activities? Um, sorry, Jesper, you're muted. Okay, there we are. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, pitfalls. I think one of the challenges is maybe evaluating the quality of the data. You know, you base a lot of faith and interpretations on what comes out, and we all know garbage in, garbage out. So I think a challenge is basically ensuring uh, that everything is of good qualities. And I think the other thing is, of course, um, for BKB, that is a very rich resource. And it's quite an investment to figure out the structure of the graph, because you really need to understand it quite well in order to make queries and analyze the data. So there is a little bit of an investment in time uh, that you also need to do in order to familiarize yourself with all the different types of formats and data that you start digging into as well. So that can be a challenge and a bottleneck. Got it. Um, next question. I'm not sure if this is for Alex for or for Jesper or maybe even Venki, but uh, can this approach take into consideration confidence weighting of relationships to fine tune some of the graphs and visualizations? Maybe can give you a first answer that uh, yes, so uh, you can give confidence levels weighting even uh, uh, even in in your kind of predictions or analysis. Um, yeah, for every node, for every relationship, you can integrate that. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe I can also take a dig at this. Typically, what we've seen is um, text mining data typically has these kinds of confidence scores because. Um, you know, there are various factors in where the data gets extracted from, at what level of confidence. Uh, traditionally, we haven't done that because uh, we manually curated the data. And so we believe that uh, all of the findings that we have are of highest uh, you know, score. And so it's, it's maybe slightly redundant, but um, 
if if there is value in in weighing certain uh, uh, certain findings from a certain journal or whether be it um, certain data sources, that is of course uh, possible. And we have fields that can be utilized in order to put in a score and and customize it. So absolutely. And maybe I can just jump in there. I, I think it can be valuable to have uh, scores because when you create your disease modules or interaction networks or whatever, you might want to set a filter if there are basically some relationships that are less reliable than others. And then you can basically fine tune your analysis, whether you want to throw out the net bay wide and be very generous with the threshold and just allow a lot of things to be connected, or you can be very strict and say, I really want to have a very high confidence. Um, and I think that can be valuable when you do this kind of analysis, but it allows you an, an, another level of flexibility. Great. Uh, next question looks like it's uh, probably for Venki. Uh, we have a license to IPA. Why can't we just use that to do the same thing? <laughs> uh, good question. Um, again, just to just for the rest of the audience, uh, the ingenuity pathway analysis is a graphical user interface to most of the same data that we've spoken of today, which is in the biomedical knowledge base. There is um, there is high level of overlap between these two products in terms of the data. But what um, the ingenuity pathway analysis or IPA provides you is a is a fantastic graphical user interface to interact with this data. Um, having said that, the data in BKB is a superset of IPA purely because uh, there are a lot of analytics and explorations in IPA that demand uh, a certain amount of uh, curation that then filters out some data that we can't really add into IPA. So you, while you may be able to replicate some of these analysis in a, in a GUI, in a graphical user interface, you may potentially see certain data filtered out that is just by nature of these tools uh, but again if you are a data scientist you have a number of uh, uh, pipelines machine learning uh, algorithms um, and other um, other downstream analytics that you want to set up and you just want to access the data then that's where you want to use uh, data directly rather than having to uh, then go through uh, this uh, interface that we also offer Got it. Okay. And then uh, looks like we have uh, one more question that I'm going to pose to all of our uh, wonderful speakers today here. Um, and we'll start with you, Jesper. What do you see as the greatest limitations or um, possibilities to using AI for drug discovery? Well, that's a good question. I think AI depends on data, right? It's not a standalone tool. I mean, so you need good quality and big amounts of data. So I think we have to get better. I think there's certainly like a, a move towards this to be better at generating data that can help you answer the question you're interested in answering. And then you can apply these tools to basically explore these data sets. And I think integrating data sets is also one of the big challenges that we're currently facing. There's so much data generated, big omics data, and we are still just scratching the surface in terms of integrating all these different things to generate more knowledge. And, and I think uh, it's very interesting times ahead. And I think these tools are really helping us uh, 
in addressing some biological questions, you know, by bringing data sets together, but it is still challenging to do that. And so I think there's, there's a lot of potential there. But yeah, it's, it's a challenging enterprise. Yeah. yeah. Alex, what do you I think? would also see it like this. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's a challenge. Uh, if we think about chat GPT or large language models in general or generative AI, and, and we see that a lot that it hallucinates, right? And, and especially in the pharma industry, we cannot use predictions or kind of black box generated AI uh, that is not precise enough, right? So that burns a lot of money. So um, which is where a knowledge graph basically helps you because the output of your large language model can be connected to a knowledge graph. And then you have connected entities from your knowledge graph. And basically you have, we, we call it grounding. Um, you have the context to that data. And I think this is the, 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 the main challenge. Uh, integrate as, as Jesper said, a high quality data, um, use any method of AI, but at the same point, be still explainable and, and yeah, keep that high level that we need in the pharma space. Venki, you want to take that same question? What are the, uh, uh, the limitations and or promises for using AI in drug discovery? Man, I mean, it's a loaded question, right? We see it's the rage, right? We've now attended so many uh, different events in terms of um, you know, pharma conferences, data conferences that we have today. And it's a rage. And I think there is no dearth of innovation in this space, right? There are startups that are really coming up with very advanced methods to interrogate data. There are others who, much like ourselves, are doing their best to come up with high quality data to make it um, as uh, seamless and as valuable to, to then take advantage of these methods. I think one of the things that comes out is it's very overwhelming, right? Uh, and that's, uh, that's to say it point blank. It's overwhelming and there is almost, uh, a, almost a, uh, there is a little gun shyness in all uh, users, pharma or biotech. And so that's where I feel the communities really uh, have to come together. It includes us, it includes uh, our partners like Neo4j to really put it all together, make simplify and, you know, uh, make more of these use cases available. I feel like we've been working with the ESPO and it's it's a fantastic journey that we've been on that we want to share with the community to make it easy, right? It's it's not it's not as complex as it sounds. And and there are methods, there are tools, there are people who actually want to collaborate with you, want to work with you. And this is a great illustration of that. And so I think the, we'll see a lot of this happening over the next couple of years, or at least I hope this happens so that the field really moves and, and you know you don't see this sort of hoarding of information just in some uh, expert centers. Um, you should re we really want to, uh, you, you want to democratize this kind of uh, technology really. Great, that's a great way to summarize things. So, well, I'd like to thank our three presenters again today, Alex Yarash from Neo4j, Venki Moktali from uh, Kaijin, and of course, uh, Jesper Riga from Idorsia Pharmaceuticals. Be sure to use the links in the resources section or go to digitalinsights.kaijin.com for more information. And with that, this concludes today's webinar. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.